Okay, so my talk tonight is called The Way of Wisdom, A Living Epistemology. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm sure that when you saw that word epistemology, it just pops off the page, just excites you. Um, the biggest crowds always come for the sex talks and the epistemology talks. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They don't come for the sex talks. They just come for the epistemology talks. Um <clears throat> Perhaps it pops out to you in a scary way, or you just are dumbfounded what's epistemology. Um, it's simple. It's just trying to think about how we know things. How do we know things? Uh, so if you've ever wondered, is this fake news? You've engaged in epistemology. If you're wondering if your friend is telling you the truth, you've engaged in epistemology. How do I know that I know? Um, if you ever want to consider a faith claim, you've entered into epistemology. So epistemology is very relevant to us. Uh, and I hope that I can re-enliven the term for you. I hope I don't, or at least give you a, a position where you give it a, a potential nod, okay? Uh, because I'm not going to be doing philosophy per se as much as theology. And I think that re the reason that epistemology and ontology and uh, all these kind of different ologies are often, we, we grow dead and numb to it. You see people go into philosophy departments and come out depressed. Um, not just because they don't have work, but... <laughs> because philosophy hasn't really given them a joy for life. Uh, so I want to call it a dead epistemology. I want to regard a living epistemology. And I want to do it through a theological lens. Because, and the reason I'm doing this is for two reasons. One, I didn't want to write a new lecture, so I pulled out an old lecture. <laughs> uh, the problem with this is that I pulled out a very old lecture. And uh, this was the second lecture I ever wrote at Labrie in 2008. Um, and I really was trying to swim in deep waters to prove myself, I think. And now I'm trying to figure out what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to work through it and hopefully I've resurrected it a bit. Um, we'll see. Um, but I was really trying to bring order out of chaos. Uh, so, so we'll see how well we go. Um, but the second reason I want to talk about this is because I do believe that we are, our culture is in a time of crisis, a crisis of meaning. And that really is tied to epistemology. Um, so this, the issues of fake news or disinformation are really just symptoms. They're not the real problem. They're the symptoms of a deeper issue, a deeper issue of what does it mean to have meaning? What is truth? Um, uh, Yuval Harari was an Israeli philosopher said that we are post-truth species. What he means by that is to say that humans um, do not live by truth, never did live by truth. We've always lived by mass illusions. And so money is an example of mass illusion. Or, uh, or when the Spaniards, they were looking for gold. And uh, I can't remember what, where they were coming into the Americas, but uh, 
uh, the indigenous people were like, why do you want gold? They're like, we don't know, but we want more of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so Harari is like, well, I mean, why is gold the standard? The gold standard, or it used to be. But now it's just Bitcoin maybe is the standard. Mm -hmm. But we have this idea that we believe these pieces of paper have value or these, or these coins have value in relation to one another in goods. Uh, he would say that that's also true with religion. Um, because we cannot handle living with the brute fact of meaninglessness. The material world is meaningless, but we have to get along with it anyway, because that's his, his position. Harari is a strict materialist. He believes that there is no meaning, but material cause and effect, impersonal and non-purposeful. So we, as a species, an animal species, we create meanings. But we have seen that this has caused problems because we're like, well, what meaning is really true? And so you see a divide of a crisis of meaning. No longer do we have unity in what we believe about the world, but we, but we see a world that's fragmented. And, uh, and Francis Schaeffer would say that when the creator is removed, reality becomes fragmented and fragmented into a dualism, into two different parts of creation that go at war with one another. And so uh, we see this in example, uh, people who are religious or Christian might think that missionary work is more important than plumbing. Prayer is more important than washing dishes. Well, this is a sacred secular divide. This is nature and grace. Uh, Thomas Aquinas um, was famous for making these distinctions. And Schaefer's like, well, that's where fragmentation starts because human reason is placed above and because of Thomas. And so we try to figure out the world through human reason rather than what God declares. Okay. And so unity is displaced because we begin with ourselves. Well, we have moved long past beyond what Christians think about the world missionary work and plumbing, is now we have a new divide, a new dualism, nature and freedom. And so you see this happening among college campuses between transgender movement and evolutionary biologists. Fat nature or freedom? Biological fact or self-expression? So you, you, these are irreconcilable differences unless we want to live in contradiction. And so Schaefer says we need to restore our sense of understanding the world in a unified way. To do that, we need to look back to the creator who's the source of that unity. Um, and so interestingly, um, I think I bring it up later. <clears throat> so what I want to do is that was what my talk said I wanted to talk about. And so what I did is early on in my life, the, the beginning for me was where did I find kind of a common ground for people to look at this kind of new epistemology, this living epistemology? Uh, and for me, I don't know about you, but uh, do you remember the first entry into the Bible? Anyone? The first book? First book? In the beginning. That was, no, 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 I'm sorry. It's not, it's not a sword drill. This is like, where did you first read the Bible and you thought, oh, that's interesting. 
rather than that's totally boring. Where? In, in the church? And... Yeah, yeah. Where in the Bible? Like, Where in the Bible? Okay, well, I have seen that the philosophical crowd has come around tonight. What do you mean by read? Um, okay, I'll give you the right answer. No, I'm kidding. For me, it was wisdom literature. It was Proverbs uh, and Ecclesiastes. After my dad gave me a, a, a yelling and a whipping, and I went upstairs and I read Ecclesiastes just to get back at him, and I thought, wow, this makes a lot of sense. <laughs> meaningless meaningless all is meaningless vanity vanity all is vanity and i thought wow i like what this guy has to say i can't believe that this is in the bible and so really the wisdom tradition i have a deep deep love for the wisdom tradition and i've only grown in my love for the wisdom tradition because it starts with this common ground it doesn't start with laws it doesn't start with commands it's smart it starts with observations and i love writing i used to write short fiction I uh, love reading poetry. Um, I, I love just observing things. And so wisdom literature always really resonated with me. Um, well, my love for wisdom has continued, but I really also feel that it is grounds for a living epistemology. And so I want to reframe how we think, and I'm going to contrast what I consider a dead epistemology, today's how the today sees the world and ourselves in it, um, but in a living epistemology. How does the Bible reframe how we think about how we know things? What kind of world do we live in? What do we expect of it? How do we see it? How do we understand it? How do we see our place in it? And so that's what I'm calling a living epistemology. Okay, so I have five lens of biblical wisdom. So this is where, this is what I mean. So in today's world, I said that we have a dualism between freedom and nature. That's kind of the basic framework in which how do we know what's true? Do we look at our intuition or do we look at biological fact, for example? How do we know what's really true? Uh, and when they come in conflict, conflict, which one has priority? Is there unity between them? Uh, well, um, when we open scriptures, when we look at wisdom, what we do is it's like putting on a pair of glasses. Um, without the creator, without the Bible, it's trying to look at the world without a pair of glasses. And you don't realize that you can't see very well. Everything is blurry. And so I'm talking about, and so we're going to go to the eye doctor. We're going to have five pairs of lenses. You know, when they do that annoying thing really close, this or that, this or that. And you get to a point where you're questioning yourself. I think this one, no, 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 wait, this one. Uh, I hate those, I have had to do that a lot. So what I wanna do is saying that the epistemology of freedom versus nature is a blurry view of the world. It's a fragmented way and we try to make our way in it. We can sometimes successfully drive along the road and get where we're going, but a lot of times we make lots of mistakes in getting there, where I believe that Wisdom literature gives us different lens that sharpens our focus on what is true knowledge and true reality. So that's what I want to look at. Okay, so the first, uh, the, my first lens, before I, I tell you what it is, uh, here's a test, a philosophy test for anyone. Okay, this is one that you should get. Um, 
where does most, where does modern epistemology start? Anyone? Gotcha. So that's great. Bonus. Okay. So what's the most famous saying from Descartes? I think therefore I am. I think therefore I am. Now, of course, this is made into a meme. I shop, therefore I am. I feel, therefore I am. But these are really questions of identity. That was not Descartes' concern. His concern was, how can I know the truth about life and reality? And how can I have certainty that God exists, certain that the world is good and orderly? How can I be certain? Well, where does he start? He starts with doubt. I need to doubt everything that I can't prove without a shadow of doubt. So the world, maybe I'm just imagining this. Maybe Do I even exist? Maybe I exist in the matrix. Maybe it's just a dream. How, what is the one thing that I cannot be confused about? Well, Descartes said, well, if we're going to start with first things, I know that I'm thinking. I think, therefore I am. So he begins with thinking. Inward thinking, and, and from there, he doubts everything in order to drive about certainty about everything else. But this is the problem. And so when you, when you meet someone who says that they're very intellectual, I go to these uh, atheist clubs downtown sometimes or pre-pandemic, and a lot of people call themselves skeptics. Skeptics means that you're very intellectual and you really want to be certain. Um, and so they drink whiskey, they pound the table with their wild hair and say, it's meaningless, we're fools. I've had that experience. And so it's like, because they want you to have the courage to experience that this is what truth is and we don't have the courage to face it. Okay. But this is why this epistemology is problematic. It puts doubt as the foundation for certainty. Think about that. Doubt is the foundation for certainty. And so people don't want to be gullible. I understand that. So there needs to be some healthy skepticism, but does it need to be the foundation? Uh, and so what we do is whenever we, we open our books, we open our newsfeed, what is it, how do we approach it? With the hermeneutics of suspicion. We distrust before until you can prove it to me. And so it's, it's getting our DNA, it's in our minds of how we see the world in this way. And so what it does is it puts me in suspicion of everything else until I, within my own mind, can ascertain if it's true and certain. And only when, at that point, will I believe it. Okay. Um, that's the beginning of a modern epistemology. And this is why it leads to death, because it begins with doubt the foundation is doubt and so it leads of course to relativism and and cynicism okay so our our eyes are blurry we need the first lens okay that first lens so okay i asked you the beginning of modern epistemology what's the beginning of knowledge in the bible can you say that again tim the fear of the lord what this is the beginning of knowledge Okay, yeah, good. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, is, and so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So yay, fear. Fear is a much better foundation, right? 
get rid of doubt, let's bring on fear. And of course, sadly, Christians are often thought of as fearful people toward truth claims. We don't want to hear the truth. And so sometimes Christians can bury their head like ostriches when facts that disrupt or discombobulate their belief system. And so they want to avoid it. They hide. But this is not at all what that phrase means. We, um, and so uh, our first lens is to understand exactly what does the fear of the Lord mean? What does it mean to view the world through this lens? Um, oh, um, Bible. And uh, sorry. Yes. Uh, one thing that I that I hate to hear from uh, the way I see it as a half believer when I go to somewhere that preached the fear. He said, "If you don't, you're gonna go to hell if you don't believe in." Jesus. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to hear your shit. Like, sorry for my Yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. Sorry about <laughs> You're right. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, absolutely. When we hear um, uh, the fear of hell and damnation and condemnation coming from the pulpit, uh, it can cause us to want to turn and run. Well, what's the purpose of being Christian if it's the reason to be Christian? It's just that you're crazy. Yeah, what? And so what's the reason to be Christian if all we're trying to do is to try to back out of our fear into something that may be more safe? Yeah, you know, and so what I hope to do tonight is to not scare you into believing this living epistemology, but to persuade you, okay? <laughs> uh, because... Um, uh, what I find about dead epistemology, it gives this illusion of freedom, but, but what it actually does is it, it, it doesn't give you anything. It doesn't give you meaning. Meaning has to be something that you carve out. Mm-hmm. But this living epistemology, I'm trying to give you a, the lens to sharpen the focus of what the Christian believes about the world and how they know about it. And, and I want to say that it leads them to joy, delight, and service. Okay? So instead of trying to persuade you by fear i want to persuade you by the beauty of what the bible has to offer okay okay right. you want to say more no i'm just i'm on board I'm just, I'm okay you're on board just, okay okay um so job 38 verse 1 through 7 so this is the beginning of what we need to hear about the fear of the lord so there's four aspects we need to know about the fear of the lord that god is sovereign that life before God is full of delight, hope, and joy. Is that what you think about when you hear fear of the Lord? That life is mysterious beyond human comprehension or mastery. And that there is the reality of the final judgment. Okay. Which you will see doesn't necessarily bring fear. An improper fear. Okay, okay so Job 38, verse 1. And so this is when Job has, is a guy, he's a righteous man, he's been suffering, and he wants to know why, why he's righteous, and he's, but he's suffering. And so he's constantly questioning God, so God speaks. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? 
On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? This is the fear of the Lord. This awesome reverence that God is sovereign. Or Job concludes after God speaks, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted to be overcome. So fear is recognizing God's awesomeness. It's not cowering, but wow. Okay. Like when you stand before the ocean, don't you get a little nervous, but it's, it's kind of an awesome joy. Okay. And if you don't respect it, you'll die. Okay. So there's an awesome joy of seeing that God is sovereign. The second is that life before God is full of delight, hope, and joy. So that this fear is one that encourages and instills joy. Uh, so in Proverbs 8, wisdom is kind of like the craftsman right beside God as God's creating. And wisdom looks at what God is doing. He's in awe. And it says wisdom delighted in all his ways, delighted in all of God's creative ways. This is also the fear of the Lord. Um, uh, Psalm 147, 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So fear is a delight in who God is and in what God does. And then it recognizes that life is mysterious. Um, so by the way, uh, I should have mentioned that I'm speaking from the wisdom tradition. There are three books, three primary books in the wisdom tradition. Do you know what they are? Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Job, and some Psalms. Some Psalms are called wisdom Psalms. Now you find wisdom elsewhere in Ruth and Samuel and the like, but those are the primary ones. Okay. So I'm quoting a lot from Proverbs. Job, Ecclesiastes, and sometimes Psalms. Um, <clears throat> so in Job 37, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. Um, his ways are not our ways. So there's a sense in which God's creativity is beyond comprehension. The fear of the Lord is recognizing that we cannot understand him fully. And then it recognizes a final judgment. Uh, this is the most quote heavy. So, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Um, and so... I'll just give you those, but there's these four aspects in which the fear of the Lord is primary in which we might begin to understand anything about the world, anything about ourselves, anything about God. We have to begin with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is not this cowering because fear makes us want to bury our heads, but a proper fear of the Lord makes us curious in wonder. We want to know. Imagine you see someone beautiful. You want to get to know them more. 
right? Uh, God is so beautiful, we want to get to know God more. We want to get to know his world more. Um, <clears throat> and so the fear of the Lord means that we stand before our creator with joy and reverence. So it's not reduced to mere moralism. God is the great commander. But that God, when we see God as the creator of all things, it brings unity to what we can know. So, so um, <clears throat> you know, I believe that Jordan Peterson has a persuasive power in today's society because he's using the biblical narrative as a way of conveying his framework. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying you have to like or dislike. I'm talking about how he functions and what he presents. Okay. And so Jordan Peterson wants to connect evolutionary psychology, evolutionary biology, um, myths, morality, philosophy, and he combines them all, but there's a skeleton that holds it all together, and it's the biblical narrative. Because there's only one way for him to find that unity, is to look to the biblical narrative. And I think the great uh, thing with Peterson is, if that was removed, it would collapse. He's dependent on it. He can't get rid of it. And that's why people keep asking him, well, do you believe in God? Do you really believe that it's true? Do you believe in the resurrection? And he's always trying to like do this because he wants to dance around it because he wants to keep it, but he doesn't know how to commit to it. And so, but it's what enables his system to hold together. Without it, it falls apart. But it still falls apart, in fact, because he doesn't believe in God to be personal. And so the big problem with Peterson is that he doesn't know where consciousness exists. Consciousness and the cosmos are in this eternal dualism, this conflict. But I just wanted to, to point out Peterson as saying that you have a modern person who's trying to use the creator in order to bring unity to his knowledge. But it's when we do away with the creator that all we have is trying to gather everything, but we don't know where to put it. But when God, the creator, is over all things, then there starts to become unity because they all have their same source. And so you can have a mathematical truth, one plus one equals two. You can have a faith claim, Jesus is Lord, and think that they are diametrically opposed, reason and faith. But when God is the creator, he holds all these facts together into an integrated whole. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to express how the Bible through wisdom literature expresses this unity, this integrity, this interconnectedness. But it begins with God being um, first. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, so second lens. Creation. Okay. So let's blur our vision again. Let's take off the glasses. We're getting a little annoyed with how slow this person is asking us. <laughs> how slow. Anyway, um, uh, we call the, and, but what we look at is now we've removed the creator and what we're left with is what is external to us, what we call nature. Okay. Uh, nature is considered impersonal and non-purposeful. Okay. A brute force of cause and effect. Uh, nature is not maimed by being disposed of us. Nature does not weep when we die. 
Um, <clears throat> we may cry, but nature does not care and no one else does. Okay. And so we as individuals are standing in the face of this brute fact, this nature that is meaningless. And so what we have to do is we have to think, how am I going to engage this thing that does not care about me? That's the framework of dead epistemology. Well, we get very uncomfortable with it. This is why there's a meaning crisis. Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, who loves to emphasize how meaningless things are, says that as a scientist, he's strictly Darwinian. But when it comes to social policy and politics, he's thoroughly anti-Darwinian. He cannot live with this. He has to live a contradiction. <clears throat> okay, now let's return to the eye exam. Because with this brute fact, it means that it's a given that has no concern for us. But if we start with the creator, what does nature become? It becomes creation first, but it also becomes not a given. It becomes a gift. It becomes a gift. And so if I were to offer you a gift, if you trusted me somewhat, it probably begins with trust, thanksgiving, and probably concern or care for this thing. Uh, except when Julia and I one time got at our, our wedding reception, someone gave us a big pewter plate the shape of a Christmas tree that there was no way that we could take. And I did not receive that with as much Thanksgiving as I should. I'll tell you that. But um, anyway, that's a long story, but please ask me later, Liz, just ask me about that story later. Okay. Um, but when we receive a gift, we receive it with trust, Thanksgiving and care and concern. So this is at the heart of biblical wisdom. Okay, now consider Solomon. Solomon is the wisest man that ever existed, supposedly, right? Uh, he uh, was this because he was really better at knowing the Westminster than anyone, <laughs> knowing his church doctrine, doing his sword drills. Mm -hmm. Do you know what sword drills are? Anyone? Who knows what a sword drill is? <laughs> uh, Donna, what's a sword drill? When you, uh, as I'm doing my own? Yeah, you look up scripture as quickly as you can. Whoever gets it first stands up and reads it. And everyone applauds and looks at how holy you are because you know your Bible so well. <laughs> that, that part, right, right. Um, so in that the few seconds that you took, I found my verse, just so you know. Um, okay, let's look at how Solomon is described as the wisest man of all time, okay? First Kings chapter 4, verse 29 through 34. Clark Brett's cheating because he has a technology. <laughs> I know. Sword drills have really changed with technology. Um, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and largeness of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East, all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all the other men, person, person, person. His fame was in all the nations round about. He also uttered 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. 
And so listen to this. This is the part I want you to hear. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts, of birds, of reptiles, and of fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. The one description of what his wisdom is, it talked about his fame, but in the one description of what it meant that he was wise is that he understood trees, plants, animals, and how they related to each other. So you see that there's a real love for the world, that the scientist and the poet do not need to be at odds. They can be one in the same person. Um, I, I remember this, uh, he's, a, he's a friend of mine, and uh, he's a volcanologist. A volcanologist is a person who studies volcanoes. So not Star Trek, no, not no. a Trekkie. <laughs> he studies volcanoes, but I remember he was walking along the beach and he picked up this rock and it was just an old boring gray rock. He's like, oh, wow, look at this rock. And he started explaining the geological forces that took place in order for that rock to exist. And he was explaining the drama of the rock. And so by the time he dropped it, I was just like, oh, it was amazing how he understood what was at work in nature. But he also saw that it was a drama. It was a gift. He didn't see it as, uh, you remember Jim Carrey in um, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? He's just standing on the beach. He goes, what? He, he just hates the beach because they're just a whole bunch of dumb small rocks. <laughs> it's a very different posture toward the world than being able to pick it up and see the drama, the giftness of the world around us. And so um, uh, it's, it's very different that the psalmist, in fact, calls the sun, the moon, and the stars to praise God because they're so excited. They want everyone to praise God. You know, when you, you're really excited about a new love, you not only want to sing about it, you want to tell other people and you want them to sing about it. Well, the psalmist is just in love with what they see. It's very different from a dead epistemology that looks at the universe as cold space that does not care about your pain. I've mentioned before Alan de Baton. He's a pop philosopher from England. He's an atheist. And he said, uh, if you think your suffering is bad, just look up into space and realize how meaningless your pain is. <laughs> it's quite a comfort. Okay. How different it is to have a living epistemology of the world that you have curiosity. And this is why when I see people going to the philosophy department to study epistemology, they come out not wanting to know. It's just killed the object that they're studying. So if one of your siblings die, my brother, I just have to look at the university. <laughs> I'm glad you're walking away with that one. Okay, <laughs> You've really listened. But we don't feel like cosmic orphans in a dark space that doesn't care about us. But we, we believe that we have found our place in a gifted community economy, a gift economy. So that's the first. That God gives unity to all things and that we delight in the world around us. The third lens is moral knowledge. There's five lenses I told you about, right? There's five. Okay. A part of delighting 
in nature is the delight in the moral structure of that creation and our moral formation. So maybe it's difficult to imagine for you to think it's delightful to imagine morality. <laughs> Perhaps if you're raised with legalism or moralism or hypocrisy, we find this difficult. Morality can seem prudish, self-righteous, holier than thou. Getting wrapped across the knuckles by someone wearing a black habit or yelled at to disgrace you into right behavior. <clears throat> but I think that this is a misunderstanding of the nature of morality, particularly as we look at biblical wisdom. If we understand its true nature, we don't only delight in it, we long for morality. We long to be moral. The problem within modern epistemology is that morality is an imposition on the dark space. You can, uh, and so morality is those, it's a private belief that you have in your own mind and you're trying to impose it on everyone else. So morality is something that we want to move away from. It seems arbitrary. Those in power get to maintain what is moral in society. Okay, so well, what is morality? Why do we delight in it? What do we long for? Why is biblical wisdom and why is it a part of our epistemic structure? Well, morality is simply the proper structure of reality and how we are to live in it. Okay, how we are to live in the world before our creator. That's morality. Today, we avoid the word morality, but we imply it all the time in our discussions around the word justice. When we steal, when we steal from someone, it causes widespread harm. Just ima imagine the amount of money and energy we spend on protecting our stuff. Door locks, car alarms. I grew up uh, fairly wealthy and my parents had, they lived out in the boondocks but they had a first rate alarm system and it freaked me out every night. Lockdown 10, nine. <laughs> and it got to one is like, and I was like, do I need to go outside? Do I need to go outside? And it was like locked, you know, and uh, it, and if you open the door, it was the loudest alarm probably heard from five miles around. Okay. But just imagine how much money we spend on, using metal and how much energy we worry about clutching our stuff in the airport. I'm walking, I'm clutching my stuff just in case that one person has interest, even though 99.9% .9 do not. We want the world world to be a moral place. When we lie, we deceive others and ourselves. Ultimately, this is why Jordan Peterson has such an emphasis on truth telling because it produces a better world. It preserves the structure of society. When children fight, they want to know, is there a moral order? Is there justice? <clears throat> so in biblical wisdom, morality is part and parcel of what it means to delight in the world. Um, in Proverbs, it says that the Lord delights in the, in the balance of scales. 
that God created the balanced scales. Isn't that interesting? Now, it's a reference to physics, a physical property that things need to balance in weight. But what's also being said there in Proverbs is that there's a moral evaluation that God hates dishonest scales. And we hate dishonest scales. But there's something about the physical world and the moral world that meet. And when they meet, it's a delight to be in it. And so that moral structure of the physical world causes us to delight in that world. We don't want just physical properties in the uh, the world, but we want moral properties. And so the wise person longs for righteousness. Uh, I like to say that righteousness means right orderedness. It means I have a right relationship to you as I have a right relationship to Zoom, as I have a right relationship to the table, and so on. Uh, It's hard to have a right relationship to everything. But that's what righteousness is. It's not about prudishness or arbitrariness. It's about being in right relationship to everything around you. Balanced scales. Priorities are correct. Everything is balanced and in harmony in life. And so... um, And so Proverbs loves to delight uh, in this moral world, and it often contrasts the righteous and the wicked, the wise and the foolish. Because it sees that this is how they relate to the world, and this is how they make it beautiful, or this is how they make it destructive. And it's something that they want to know about the world. Uh, Let me give you Proverbs 10, verse 3. Oops, did I go too far? I should ask people to look this up. (laughs) And I'm looking at a Bible that I just picked up. And so it's not my Bible. You know how, I don't know if you know that. I know. Okay. Your patience is commendable. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. You know, better a morsel of bread in in a house that's happy than a feast in a house of strife. So implied in this is that if you are righteous and faithful in all of God's ways, you will succeed. And if you are wicked, dishonest scales, it will go badly for you. You will fall into the pit of your own making. Um, But I'm going to have to return to that sentiment later, okay? But it's okay. I don't care. <clears throat> okay. So um, let's say that your eyesight is getting better and better as I'm talking. Okay. God holds everything together. There's a delightful creation, but now we got to the morality thing. And you're just like, I don't really want to see it too clearly. You know, it's like when you you're a little worried about something going wrong with your body. You want to avoid the doctor because you just don't really want to know. And maybe it will just kind of disappear on its own. Um, I have that all the time. And uh, I went to the doctor and I was really disappointed. They couldn't find anything. I was just like, <laughs> so that's how doomed I am. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but we say, okay, I really want to have the glasses just to know how to enjoy things and 
and to see everything fall together, but I really don't like the moral part. Uh, I want to have a moral life as long as I can just continue to do what I want. Okay. I want life to go well, as long as I can kind of keep hedging my bets. If that's you, it's me. It's every one of us, I think. Okay. But what do we find with modern epistemology? Okay. We have no God, an impersonal universe, and personal agency, the ability to act. Okay. So that's the moral life. The moral life of a living epistemology means I know how to live in the world freely in harmony. But a dead epistemology is like there's a brute force, it's an enemy, and I have to impose my will upon a meaningless existence. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so we may believe that there's facts about the material world, but it's hard for us to think that values are have any bearing on true knowledge outside of our own opinions and preference. So what do we do? We mine the world for information so that we can use that data or manipulate that data for our personal preference. We inevitably impose our will upon an impersonal universe. Sometimes we even call for policy change or policy in the law in order to accommodate our impositions of the will. Okay. Because, uh, yeah. But biblical wisdom sees that there's a moral structure that is just as real as gravity. Just like the scales, there's a physical property, but a moral property to scales. Okay. And so you may not believe in gravity, but if you jump off the building, you will experience it. And you can believe that there's not a moral structure to the universe, but if you push hard enough, you will experience it. Reality bites back. Um, the Industrial Revolution was born out of this. It gave us energy, mass production, transportation, and much more, but it also produced pollution, sickness, and death, okay? It's done a lot of harm as well. Instead of recognizing that a line is crossed, we just press forward, hoping that we can find new solutions to keep doing what we want to do. Because it's impersonal anyway, as long as we can just stay ahead of the curve. But the moral structure has been breached. Biblical wisdom, though, says that if we come to understand the moral structure of creation, we can live in it well. We need to listen when we cross a line. Uh, and at times we do not know why we do not need to cross a line. Sometimes I tell my children, please don't cross this line. Okay. I let them cross little lines so that they don't cross the big lines, but sometimes they cross big lines. My nephews and nieces have crossed big lines and now they have consequence in life for the rest of their lives. Um, <clears throat> they can still try to live as best as they can in it, but it's a struggle now. <clears throat> so we need to know that there's a moral structure and how to live in it. So we say to children, we say to friends and uh, people seeking advice, tell the truth, be diligent, live generously. You'll have a rich and rewarding life. But don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. You're deluding yourselves and you're going to hurt yourself and others. Those are true. Those statements both are true. Okay, 
fourth lens, okay? The fourth lens, but it's not supposed to be this way, okay? The reality of sin and evil, okay? The world is not exactly according to this perfect model of righteousness and wickedness. So if you only read Proverbs, uh, you could imagine a template for success. Be faithful, be rewarded. Um, Purity culture, have a perfect husband with perfect sex life. Um, If you listen to the predominant tone in Proverbs, she spoke on this, by the way. I'm not just looking at Liz to like corner her. She actually spoke on this topic, okay? She spoke on purity culture, okay? So sorry. Now the predominant tone through Proverbs is this. Live righteously, be rewarded, live wicked, you will fall, you will fail, you will be judged. But there is this one little insert. There's a few little inserts that happens in Proverbs that just kind of muddy the waters just a little bit. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 23. An unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. Hmm. What are we supposed to do with that? So a part of wisdom literature is also lament. Psalm 73, why do the righteous, righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? This is, the, this is the psalmist questioning biblical wisdom. It's questioning God's moral structure. It's questioning the goodness of creation. Is it really working? Is it really true? But what we'll see that it does not end with, well, I tried to be faithful. It didn't work. Screw that. There are no rules. And that's where sometimes we go. Okay. I tried my best. It didn't work. Who knows anyway? So we need to look at the wider lens of um, wisdom tradition. So not only do we have Proverbs, but we also have Job. We also have Ecclesiastes. Okay. Um, Job is a righteous man who suffers in spite of being righteous. And what's the problem of his friends? They want to say, no, nothing is wrong with the moral structure. There's got to be something wrong with you. They're trying to reinstitute biblical wisdom. In the book, and God is critical of these friends, not letting it all have a voice. In Ecclesiastes, a person seeks wisdom, but has real trouble seeing the big picture because they can't see the beginning and they can't see the end. They have eternal longings, but finite abilities. So what's at work here? in the Bible to include these in the wisdom tradition. So there's a guy named Derek Kidner. If you love biblical commentaries, and Donna, I didn't tell you the whole truth. This guy was pretty helpful for me, but this guy is my favorite of all time. Okay. Um, by every, I've literally bought every commentary he's written from different publications. I really like him. But he says that in this, He says that the Hebrew writers, like in our day and age, we try to qualify. Do you love me? Well, I love you, but I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, and we start qualifying. We always try to qualify. Sometimes we qualify ourselves to death. Okay. But 
Derek Kidner says that's not how the Hebrew mind works. They say it fully this way. They say it fully that way. And they say it fully this way. So if you're righteous, things will succeed for you. If you lie and steal, things will go badly for you. But righteous people do suffer. The wicked people do prosper. And sometimes you just don't see the point of it all. Okay. All these are true at one and the same time. It's just trying to give voice to all of it because somehow it all hangs together, but there's an incongruity. How does it all hang together? But biblical um, wisdom says that it does. Um, Consider this contradiction in Proverbs. Rebuke a fool unless he's wise in his own eyes. Don't rebuke a fool lest you incur his wrath. Well, which is it? Do you either rebuke the fool or do you don't rebuke the fool? What's the problem? It's more than just situational ethics. Okay. Situational ethics can become relativistic, but that's, um, but it is, um, it's not merely situation. What it is, it's expressing a conundrum. The problem in that situation is that the fool has confounded wisdom. It's not, he's not allowing wisdom to flow and he's not allowing you to flow with it. Okay. There's the reality of sin in there, a reality of evil. And Job, we see that the devil plays a part in his suffering, but Job didn't see that. And often we don't see behind the veil of why we suffer. So what we find with these alternate voices is not that life is absurd or wisdom is relativistic or that knowledge is relativistic. Rather, the point here is that it is beyond human mastery and beyond human comprehension. I said that that is true with delight. Things are beyond our comprehension because things are so good, but it's also beyond our comprehension because we can't understand evil. Um, At the end of Job, uh, God's response to Job. Um, and, And I read it earlier. Let me paraphrase what God is saying. Okay. Job. Were you there when I laid the foundation? Do you even understand all that I have done to make it good and beautiful and delightful? Then how in the world can I explain its distortion? How can I explain its corruption? Do you see what I mean by that? So neither the book of Job or the book, nor the book of Ecclesiastes causes us to abandon hope because they said that there is an ultimate order and that there is an ultimate orderer, but we're just not sure how it's going to reconcile. How are we going to reconcile? So what are we to do with this incongruity? Are we supposed to just have a plastic smile toward God and toward the world as we try to figure it out the best as we can and use the Bible as best as we can? Well, the law pointed beyond itself, but the wisdom tradition also beyond it pointed beyond itself. And so this leads to my fifth lens and my final lens, Jesus. Okay. <clears throat> so when we think of Jesus, we think of him being a wise person. Uh, he spoke wisely, speaking in parables, looking at ordinary events. He loved looking at flowers and thinking about people and reality and profound things. He also acted wisely. 
asking questions and all this kind of stuff. But, um, uh, and also we see that as a righteous man, he suffered unjustly. So he suffered like Job. So in any way, in, in many ways, he evidences a lot of what wisdom tradition is about. But there's something more important is that Jesus embodies, anchors, and fulfills wisdom in the Bible. The wisdom tradition, so we often think of the law pointing to Jesus. The wisdom tradition also points to Jesus and finds its fulfillment in him. <clears throat> so the writers of the New Testament came to realize this, how profound it was that Jesus died and rose again, not just as an announcement that we could be forgiven of our sins, but that God was doing a work in the deep, deep soil of earth in the... Um, uh, if you read, if you've read um, Narnia, C.S. Lewis says uh, when Aslan dies and the witch kills him and he's dead, the children cry. They go back to see his dead body and he's he's raised again with power. And they're like, how are you alive? He says, there's a deeper magic that the witch doesn't knows nothing about. And so that's really very biblical, really grounded in wisdom literature is that there's a deeper structure to reality than just what we see, even in death. And so Paul declares Jesus the wisdom of God. Have you ever thought about that? <clears throat> Paul re references this because he's talking about the cross of Christ in 1 Corinthians, but he's saying that God um, placed Jesus on the cross, that Jesus went to the cross, as a part of his wise purposes, his wise plans to accomplish something. It was the wisdom of God and his foolishness to the Greeks. What is he saying here? Does that mean that we need to abandon critical thought or reasonable thinking? Now, some people have taken it this way, so they don't want philosophy or school learning. Um, <clears throat> That's not what Paul's saying. Paul loves Stoic poetry and Epicurean. He loves looking at all this stuff, art. Um, rather, he's saying that the death and resurrection of Jesus is just not a logical conclusion that we could have worked out from first principles. Doubting everything, I think, therefore, I am, dot, 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 the cross of Jesus. It doesn't work that way. Rather, Paul and the other apostles say we have to start with the resurrection as the beginning point for any true understanding of reality. <clears throat> and so what you hear is that there's a whisper in the wisdom tradition that is loudly proclaimed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, so Job intimated this in Job 19. We're approaching our end here. Where's Job? Okay. Does anyone know this verse? 19 verses 25 through 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he shall stand upon the earth. After my skin has thus been destroyed, then from my flesh I shall see God. Is this wonderful view of this man who's suffering righteously, but he sees that there's a hope. He has a hope that God will make something of it, even of his suffering, even of the incongruity of his existence 
in the midst of what God has promised? How can this incongruity be made to reconcile or to make sense? And so the writers of the New Testament see that Jesus is that answer to Job's longing and to the wisdom and the whispers of wisdom tradition. Consider how John, Paul, and the author of Hebrews all state the pre-existence of Jesus in order to explain what he's accomplished. They realized that what was shadowy in wisdom tradition was shown to be fulfilled. Um, so in Pro Proverbs, you see wisdom as personified, um, delighting in what God is doing in creation, and that creation is even made through God's wisdom. Um, but what was merely personified becomes actual in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of that wisdom. So what does that matter? How does it relate to our topic? It means first that we have to start with the resurrection as our starting point to understand reality. So from there, we look forward and we look backward from the resurrection. It also means that God has secured his promises for the created and moral order. He has secured it. Um, it's not, it's, it's, um, uh, um, it's, it's a hope that has been anchored in what Jesus has done. And lastly, it means that when people place their faith in Jesus, they're not simply forgiven of their sins, but they are made new creations. That's an interesting phrase. Why does Paul speak of us as new creations? It's not just a restored heart, but that we are now restored to the moral order that God has secured in his son, Jesus. And so Paul says that when we place our faith in Christ, following him through the work of the spirit, our minds are renewed. So instead of the absence of thought that we take Christ to be the starting point in abiding in him, in his ways, our minds are renewed and given an understanding of the world around us. Okay, so my conclusion is so without our awareness of God as creator, everything becomes fragmented, impersonal, and something that we can excavate for personal preference, breaching the moral order and causing chaos and destruction and death. Um, it's not that God cannot continue to show his common grace through us, not allowing us not to be as bad as we could be. But, um, but I've tried to show that through the wisdom tradition, that we can have not a dead epistemology that leads to fragmentation and manipulation, but to something living and flourishing. That God gives us unity as we look to him, reaffirming the goodness of creation. And that we are given unity in this hope and in our discovery of the world. So practically this means that as the Christian engages the world with the light, it means that they can be plumbers, environmentalists, Jesuit priests. Um, uh, they can live many different places in which to express what God has given them in their own sphere and their own arena in that God holds it together. As we look to him um, and as we look to delight and glorify him in what we do and how God leads us to interact 
and engage in his world. And that I would say, in fact, that, um, and I've engaged lots of people who've done a lot of philosophy coming through here, but I've seen that God's wisdom, if we look, really look deeply at what God is doing in the world through Christ, he gives us the wisdom that Galilean fishermen had before the great courts of Rome. That simple answers can be more profound than all the fancy words. Doesn't mean it's less reasonable, less intellectual, less thoughtful, but actually more profound and less pretentious, I find. Okay, that's where I end. You made it, electron epistemology. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. The golf, I used to play golf, so it sounds like a golf club. Um, <laughs> um, or as my friends would do. Is that the poetry snap? Yeah. Huh. Okay, so what would you like to talk about? So this is a time where we have a discussion if you're new to Libri. I have no hesitance that you want to disagree with me, uh, question me, or even try to work out implications that I have not worked out fully. Uh, I would like to, to hear that or any reflections that you have to add to what I've had to say. Okay, so that's, that's, this, that's this moment. And if you're on Zoom, you're a pros, just unmute yourself and start talking, okay? This. Uh, this is a two-parter. The first one is, can you just remind us of the five lenses again? Okay, the five lenses. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, I tried to reiterate them, but not saying one, two, three, four, five. First, the first lens is that we need the creator to give us unity. Two, creation gives us uh, uh, the gift of creation. Three, the moral structure, the delight of moral structure of creation. Uh, the fourth is that that this um, that everything is not what it's supposed to be, um, and so we need to know that there's limitations to what we can know, and that there's not mastery, and that there's brokenness. And then the last is the need for Jesus to bring uh, to reconcile those incongruities. So Creator, creation, moral framework, sin and evil, and Jesus. Okay. Um, oh, second part, two-parter. Yeah, so I guess that I guess this one would fit in lens four, probably. Um, I was just thinking about how so Harvard University, uh, on if you look at its crest, it has like these three books on it that say Veritas, yeah. and it used to be that one of the books was turned over to represent that there were some things that only God knows, and then and now they're all turned facing up to mm. basically show that we can know everything. <laughs> Interesting. So, but my my question is sort of how how should we think about the things that only God knows? Like, because we you know we have a value for learning. I think there's that's reflected in the Bible. Like even how you're talking about Solomon, who understood scientific things about trees and animals. Um, but are there are there kinds of knowledge or or something that are off limits to us? And how would we kind of think about what those are like that places like we shouldn't go or just do we just recognize that we're never going to know everything or is it our posture to how we pursue knowledge like what is that kind of turned down book how do we think about that great I guess um so so um <clears throat> Solomon knew a lot about birds and trees and plants and uh and there were things that he was able to know 
Um, but are there things that we aren't able to know or not, or, not or, or we should to. not pursue? Right. Um, and so it's more about that second question. Is there kind of forms of knowledge that we shouldn't pursue? Yeah, or, or, or maybe even like ways in which we pursue knowledge that are, are wrong. Uh, right. Both yeah, them. because, you know, um, my kids think that there's nothing that sh they shouldn't know. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, no, you're not mature enough for some things. Right. And uh, you're not ready for that. And if you learn that information too soon, you're going to be irresponsible with that knowledge. Uh, so I do believe that there is a time and place for us to know things, but there are also things that we will never know. Mm -hmm. Even Jesus says he doesn't know the time or place, but the, only the Father, right. though he imitates what the Father. Um, and so there is a sense that there is there are things that will always be held from us. And I would go so far as to say that even in heaven, there will be many things that we will never know. Okay. And that will be okay. In fact, it will be a part of our joy. But uh, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to necessarily remain ignorant. So where should we investigate and where should we be cautious? Uh, you know, uh, I think that there's some things like, uh, let me just give some examples or some thoughts. First, uh, there was the garden of the knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve were kept away from. It wasn't that God wanted to, them just to remain ignorant, that it, it's like a, that is kind of him wanting them to remain ignorant so that they can, he can remain in power. Um, that's really Satan's temptation to them to think that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they say, oh, he's like, if you know this, then you'll know as God knows. Mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't seem that the story doesn't say that it isn't so to a degree mm -hmm. that they come to realize something that they had not known before that God knew, but was able to hold mm -hmm. without sin. Mm -hmm. But Adam and Eve were not able to carry that, to bear it. Mm -hmm. And maybe one day they will be able to bear it. I, maybe. Um, that maybe in heaven they will have a greater knowledge, but not a complete awareness of as God. Um, and so there is an instance that we need to be careful to not just to say, well, I should just know. And, and as I've become more and more mature, I realize I don't need to know. Um, I mean, sometimes just gossip. You want to know the gritty details, but you just need to stop asking questions. <laughs> Okay, it's not your business. Okay, okay, Liz, stop asking me <laughs> about Tim. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, that's not that's not a real example. I'm just looking that up. But uh, but there are times when we want knowledge that we aren't ready for or that is not for us, uh, and so we need to be okay. But we feel that if something is kept from us, then we're being deceived yeah. or duped. Yeah. Uh, but when you're a parent, you know that you're not telling your children certain things for because you love them. You want them to mature into that knowledge. And I've tried to communicate that to Samuel and Sarah Beth. I want you to know these things, but not yet. It seems like that requires a lot of trust in the person who is like, you know, has the knowledge. Like it, it strikes me as all this the stuff around fake news and everything. When we feel we can't trust, you know, the government or institutions or even the internet. And it's hard for us to have information withheld because we think 
well, what are they doing with that information? Yeah, and that's the problem is that sometimes people do withhold information like fake news or disinformation or whatever it is, because there is a lot going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. We've had people here that have come that worked in D.C. and they worked in the Republican Party and they said it's just a dog or um, dog, 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 eat dog world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they said that there's just like politicizing and positioning and lying and lobbying. And they said it's a pretty gross display of what democracy has become. Uh, and so, uh, um, yeah, so we do become suspicious because people have become deceitful. Uh, and so if someone's deceiving us, we want to know if they're telling us how to figure it out. And sometimes, you know, people are in relationships where the person is being deceitful and is causing the other person to become crazy. Um, because they're trying to figure out the truth. And so that's information that they need, but they're being held back. Um, But just because that's the case doesn't mean that every time information is held. I was a part of a church council in Vancouver. Uh, um, I was on it for a few years and it got to a a real tension in the community because um, uh, it was around the issue of sexuality, sexual ethics. And we had not even discussed it. It was kind of like bubbling, but we hadn't had like a formal discussion because it's just kind of a sticky topic that we weren't ready to have yet. And this was like 2002. And, um, but there was a person from the congregation that was very conservative and very concerned and said, apparently you're this and we're leaving the church. Mm-hmm. It was like, huh. And then the same week, the most like progressive person in the community said, I know that you're like this. And it was the opposite. And I'm leaving. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, well, we haven't even said anything. We haven't, even, even, we haven't even had our conversation and people are leaving because they already know that we have this agenda. Um, and so suspicion can actually drive the ship into, you know, to sink uh, that there needs to be a, a trust a hermeneutics of trust um, And sometimes that means it's okay for me not to know. Uh, You know, I do a lot of pastoral care outside of Libri and within Libri. And and I really pride myself on trying to keep great confidence uh, because it protects the dignity of that person. um, And uh, it also is unnecessary for other people to know unless it's necessary for them to know. Um, But if people trust me over time, then they realize, okay, I don't need to know, even though I'd really like to know the details because, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, because they're interesting, you know, but, but that's not a place. But I would also say that there are some things that we just don't know about God's purposes. And so we've become suspicious. Mm-hmm. Why is he so long in waiting? How long, O oh Lord, mm-hmm. are you asleep? Um, and so we start becoming suspicious of God's slowness. Mm-hmm. Um, though Paul lovely says, he's like, don't you realize that his slowness is to give people time to repent mm-hmm. and to be restored? He's not slow because of a moral problem. He's slow because he's gracious and long suffering. Um, uh, but we, but we can always be suspicious and God showed his hand through Jesus. Um, uh, Jesus spoke, Jesus died and Rosie showed his purposes and like, look, I can't explain to you, Job about why you're suffering or why the devil came in front of me and I gave him that allowance. But I, but the Christian can say, but I entered in mm-hmm. 
I took that on, mm -hmm. not only in solidarity, but also in victory. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, um, so sometimes we just need to trust the person instead of needing to know the facts. Seeing the character of God helps us to trust him rather than knowing all of Yeah, seeing the character of God, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, Vince. Just quick. Question. Yeah. You know, I don't believe that Jesus came back to life. But right. I believe in the Creator. But you, you mentioned something about uh, soil. Yeah. And I was interested for that because I thought maybe I can find some comfort into what, what do you mean exactly with the soil? Uh, it was a poetic device. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what I meant is to say that, I mean, Jesus literally died and went into the dirt or the tomb okay mm -hmm. we get buried and we we build six foot graves you know those kind of things uh and so you don't want to talk about that oh okay uh but we get buried in the dirt uh and so there's something about jesus died but then he rose again and it's just like wow like what happened there like he was buried but there was power for him to come out like what happened what happened okay deep in the soil okay well the tomb okay but i'm just saying poetic device okay 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 the, the literalist my i'm the figurative person in our relationship julie is the literalist um so yes he he was put in a tomb okay probably no dirt on upon his white shroud sprinkled sprinkled dirt i don't know but come on people um so jesus was buried in the tomb but there was something that happened in death that in the midst his body was dead there and yet life came back not like resuscitation where he just wasn't breathing for a little while i mean he was pierced Okay, in his side, in his hands, his feet, he hung there for a long while. Uh, and it was a, a, a good long while that he was dead. He was considered dead um, by all participants. And yet, uh, and so uh, there's no one in the gospels that say, oh, he must have, he wasn't really dead. He must have stumbled around and like, and made it made his way around to the other um, other disciples and just kind of made a good show of it before he kind of fainted. I don't you don't hear that kind of story. But my point is is that what I'm trying to say with going into the soil is that one something happened in his death. There was power that had enabled him to rise again from the dead. And so Paul speaks of it as the Father raised him, or by the Spirit's power he was raised. Um, um, and Jesus rose again. So, so there's different, there's different ways of speaking about there's something that happened, but we don't know what. Okay. So I'm just saying something mysterious in death and he overcame death. So that's the first, and in that he overcame death is that he had power over death, that death did not have power over Jesus. It has death over us, but it didn't have the power over Jesus or not a lasting power, you see. He yielded to it, and then he pushed it aside, and he was he, he raised again, okay? 
So, so there's something to say, oh, wow, if Jesus rose again from the dead, then there must be something he understands about reality that we do not. What's your secret, Jesus? What's your secret? How did you rise again from the dead? Okay. It wasn't a parlor trick. It was something very mysterious and deep. So what I'm talking about the deep, deep soil in this other sense is that um, uh, I was talking about creation having an order, a moral structure and a creative, a prop, uh, like a material structure. And so there's something about how God made the world so that seeds produce trees of its own kind, fruit of its own kind, right? That there's a, there's a consistency, you know, fish are to swim in the sea, the birds to fly in the air and people to walk on the earth. You know, there, there's an order to life, the way that the material that we materially exist has an interdependence, a quality to it, the way that God designed it. I'm saying that when Jesus was buried in the grave, that when he had power over death, he was, he was giving us information a new awareness that there's something more about this structure of the world than we are aware of. Um, uh, and so it's not just that God came and imposed his will and said, I'm not going to let you die. Uh, I don't believe that. I believe that Jesus was vindicated. It was through his righteousness and um, that he, he was vindicated. Okay. Um, I don't know. I don't know how to express that. Um, so I should be careful. But, but what I'm saying is that it was because Jesus rose again from the dead that all of earth is restored through him or will be restored through him. So, um, so often when people think Jesus rose again from the dead, it says, wow, he has victory over death. If we're forgiven our sins, we'll have victory over death. Mm -hmm. That's it. But that's not the whole gospel story. The gospel is that creation is groaning. It's, it's subject to futility. But Jesus was buried in the ground, in the tomb. Mm -hmm. But when he's raised again, not only is he vindicated in his righteousness or in his innocence, mm -hmm. in his faithfulness to God, but that it is in him that all the earth will be restored not just forgiveness of sins, not just that we won't see death, but that there's, um, that God's created and moral order will be renewed and sustained and established for eternity. It's much bigger than... It's much bigger than Jesus, because otherwise this is what happens. If you just believe that Jesus died again, rose from the dead and forgives us our sins so that we can be with him, a lot of people believe that that just means that when we die, our souls join and we live in this kind of ethereal harp-like cloud. Okay. <laughs> right. True. Um, heaven. Yeah. But that's not, that's not how the Bible describes heaven. Uh, heaven has an earthly quality to it. Okay. Uh, and so it says that it doesn't say that we will uh, go up to the New Jerusalem, but the New Jerusalem will come down and be established on earth. Heaven and earth will meet. Okay. So, so God 
will come and it says, and I will make all things new. He doesn't say, I will just make all things different. I'm going to give you soul-like bodies, maybe with angel wings, and you're going to be in the clouds, and you're just going to be singing songs for eternity. But it's, it has a much more earthiness to it. Uh, if you want a long established answer to this, I have a, a lecture called what did Jesus save us for? Um, but it's to, it's, it's God's purposes for creation in the very beginning was to establish humanity to participate in his creation morally so that we might be able to produce culture. That was God's purposes, but we followed our own ways and we brought destru um, destruction and distortion to creation. So when Jesus died and rose again from the dead, not only did he pay for our sins, but that God reaffirmed the very goodness of creation and the very goodness of our place in it. So Jesus is restoring us and ultimately restore us to our place so that creation can flourish. Um, because Romans says, uh, creation groans for the liberation of the sons of God. Uh, so creation groans until we are liberated from our sinful practices so no longer do we bring distortion destruction and death to earth but that it will be established in god's faithfulness and that's what he's begun in jesus was that a little heady okay yes yes i find your five lenses very helpful in thinking about knowing thank you fred mm -hmm. I feel encouraged. Uh, yeah. I will repeat that. The five lenses yeah. are very helpful, <laughs> and I think they um, are so much of what is attractive about Christianity. But the question that was running through my mind, and I think it's related to Vincent, is it seems like the the creator story, the sense of like our interdependence with the living world that's animated, mm -hmm. is transcultural. Like that yeah. has existed in different people groups around the world for thousands of years. And it seems like it provides, except for the Jesus piece, everything you would need for that unifying living epistemology that you described. Yes. And even without the Jesus piece, that living epistemology is intact. Like I think it it serves that purpose for the people who still hold to those spiritual. Right. And in some ways, it's not necessarily restoring, but it's a remembering. It's like if we could reconnect to the knowledge that has existed for thousands of years up until fairly recently, then maybe we wouldn't need to be restored because we actually already are. We have forgotten the right relationship that great yeah it makes perfect sense okay so let me try to articulate my articulate because you articulate it perfectly and i'm not gonna i'm gonna butcher it <laughs> but you're saying okay outside of the fifth lens of jesus mm -hmm. you see that there's a rich living epistemology among that is transcultural the creator the gift of creation a moral knowledge and even an awareness of destructive practices let's say, that we see, um, a forgetfulness of ancient awareness of how we should live in nature or something like that, whatever it is. And you're saying, you know, we can really have a living epistemology 
or at least have a common living epistemology, even without Jesus, that um, instead of trying to think of a restoration, we can think of a more of a return uh, to, um, would you say more of a, how we, a return to the noble savage yeah yeah so i don't want to drift too far in that direction because i know that has its flaws but um okay well yeah. let me respond to oh, it sure okay uh hopefully I, I didn't mean to do you injustice That's all good. okay okay um because there is there is a desire for uh i mean even without romanticism uh hayao miyazaki who did Spirited Away and other films. And he did one film called Ponzo, I think it was called or something like that. Ponyo. And uh, it's really, it's really where he becomes more evident in what he's trying to say. And what he's saying is that Japanese culture has become so much more the way of Western capitalism that there really been a, a forgetfulness of the, of the nature gods and how we need a return to the nature gods so that we can live in more re better relationship to nature. And so there is a sense of a re return to that without a romantic noble savage return, mm -hmm. because Miyazaki would say that there's a good and evil at work. We just need to be at work with the good rather than the evil, but we need to be mindful of what's dangerous. And so there's other ways of thinking about returning. Uh, you know, there was actually a sixth lens in the original uh, uh, original talk. And it was talking about how not only there is the gift of creation, a moral framework, but there's also universal implications. Uh, and what you find interestingly in the wisdom tradition is how transcultural it is. So it's interesting that the queen of Sheba recognized how wise Solomon was. And it said that the nation, the national leaders crowded around Solomon because, and so it doesn't just mean that Solomon was so wise. It also means they recognized that he had that wisdom and that they resonated with that wisdom. And they knew that it was true of their own situation. Uh, you know, this really came home to me. I was teaching, I taught ESL for 13 years or so. And, uh, and there was a conversation class and I always try to come up with new ways of teaching them. And I thought, you know what? And I had just done seminary and I'm just twiddling my thumbs. I'm thinking about how to teach English. So what I did is I went to Proverbs because I love Proverbs, as I mentioned. And I took out all the ones that had reference to God, temple or law. And there's not many of them. There's a lot to God, but there's not much. There's very little about temple or law. And um, uh and I cut them out and I put them in a stack. And there was like four to five people each table. What was really surprised me is how animated people got. And there were several people like, where did you find these sayings? They're amazing. These are so profound. And I was like, the Bible, you know, um, I wasn't shy. They knew I was a Christian and they would go on seminary, but they were just so impressed. They had never read anything like it. They had Confucius. They had the Buddha. They had... Uh, these other kinds of sayings. Um, and I, and I also had um, in my PowerPoint that I was going to show a Lululemon bag yeah. with all the like sayings on the Lululemon bag. But anyway, uh, it falls far short of Proverbs. But what you found, I found is that these people from different countries, uh, Switzerland, Quebec, Saudi Arabia, 
um, China, Japan, uh, Taiwan, Korea, and more, is that how enamored they were with the wisdom that I was laying before them. They, they were clamoring over the wisdom of Solomon. And I was like, wow, it's still powerful even now. To 21st century people around the world, it's still really powerful. So it says something about the universality of that wisdom. Uh, you also see another transcultural aspect to the wisdom literature tradition. Um, uh, I'm going to get to Jesus, but um, so I'm not going to be full agreement. But, uh, but the other is that... Um, that in Proverbs, you have King Agur and King Lemuel. Mm -hmm. It's very likely that they're probably Assyrian or some questionable heritage, but not, or lineage, but not Jewish, most likely. And, uh, and yet their wisdom is preserved in the book of Proverbs in the Bible. You also have wisdom from the Egyptian, uh, the wisdom of a Hanumanitab that is cut and pasted and put in wisdom literature. Uh, it's not plagiarism, but it's this kind of like, ah, we identify that as true. So just as the nations climb around Solomon, Solomon could look at other wisdom literature and say, that's true. But there's a difference. Uh, um, and so there is a living epistemology, but here are some corrections. Okay. Um, even though I want to say that as fully as possible. And so at, at Labrie, if someone's an atheist, uh, if someone's a Buddhist, if they say something that's true and corrective for me that I need to hear, I will listen. I'm not going to feel defensive, okay? Uh, because I've also learned that in Proverbs is that even though they cut and pasted some of this Egyptian wisdom literature from uh, the wisdom of Hamanatep, uh, mm -hmm. is that they didn't copy and paste everything. They took out certain ones. Mm -hmm. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Not just tribally, but no, that is not true of God. That is not true of this world. And so they were selective. So they could recognize it, but they were selective. Um, so it doesn't mean that they just said, oh, we just need to be relativistic and just have like, you know, just a combination of everything because then it actually starts chopping things down. The Enlightenment tried that. It didn't work. Um, and so the proverbial men and women or the sages, the wisdom tradition recognized that there is wisdom outside the courts of God's people, but that all truth is God's truth. And, but we need to look to God to know if it's true or not. Okay. So there is a discernment, uh, um, uh, process in that. The second thing is, uh, yes, I do believe that there's a living epistemology. And so there's a common ground in which we can say, hey, let's take care of the earth, for instance. I know that's a, a, a love and a concern for you. Uh, and say, hey, we can go to different traditions and say, how can we borrow from other people and find common grounds to do the same thing? There was a guy named uh, uh, O.E. Wilson, I think his name, he, he had this thing about consilience. He's an atheist, but he was raised a Southern Baptist. But he wrote an interesting book called Creation. And in it, he begins, you know, I no longer believe in Christianity, but I believe about the importance of the earth. And you Christians, you Southern Baptists, 
if you read your Bible, you should also be concerned about the earth. So let's find common ground so that we can take care of this earth. And then he goes on. You know, we, we want to find common ground or what Schaefer would call co-belligerence, that we don't need to be allies, but we can find common ground in order to accomplish something good. Okay. Uh, and so I believe what we should do that. Uh, Julia did it with, I mean, she, she worked with Buddhist and atheist nurses um, because they, they all desired to show the dignity of the patients that they cared for in the downtown east side. Uh, they had a common ground, a co-belligerence. But we cannot go all the way because um, we can't just return to the garden. We can't just return because what are we returning to? Um, you know, uh, wisdom tradition as it stands has these incongruities that are calling, at least in the Bible, calling for God to fulfill his promises from how he made creation in the beginning. But other creation narratives don't start with a, um, uh, with a holy creation that is distorted by human rebellion against the God who has created it. Now, there are, there are uh, what you often find, especially among um, ecological beliefs or uh, pantheistic or pagan religions, is that there is that there is an eternal dualism between good and evil, and that we just need to figure out the balance. But what sh what God declares in the Bible is that in the beginning God created; He declared it very good. But then there was a distortion brought into it. Somehow the snake got into the garden. Um, so there was somehow a reality that evil came in, tempted Adam and Eve, and caused disruption and distortion. So we, we can't go back because the biblical story is that we continue to, we continue to march forward and God is com continually accomplishing his purposes without, and so the, the call is never get to back to the garden. We're never supposed to go back to where Adam and Eve were. We're supposed to march forward, but how can we march forward and things be brought back to the way they should be? Well, it has to be through restoration. And so that's why the biblical narrative is through Jesus toward restoration. Um, and so, so I want to have a common ground to say, how can we take care of the environment or ecological awareness? How can we contend against corporate greed, environmental destruction? Uh, I can find a lot of common ground and co-belligerence, but it doesn't mean that I'm trying to return it to some native sense, uh, nativist sense. Um, some romantic sense as well, like, but we need to go forward um, because I don't believe that evil and goodness are eternally coexisting. How do you, Sorry for the long answer, but <laughs> I was going somewhere. How do you? Do you want to say born, anything? You have to reborn or something. So how do you reborn if you don't believe in those things? What do you mean? Well, some people they get baptized or whatever. You have to reborn. I just watched. And we'll be the son of God. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, but I'm trying to understand the question. Well, uh, this would be evolution moving forward, but it seems that if we have to reborn, it's kind of going backwards. Oh, I see. Yeah, you're right. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, uh, there there was a man in the Gospels. His name was Nicodemus, and he goes, "How can an old man go back into the mother's womb? That sounds silly." 
Um, and he says, well, you're thinking materially, I'm talking spiritually. And, um, and so, so what he means by being born again is, is in the same way that Paul says you are a new creation. So it means that we are born in sin, but there's something. Uh, and so we're born into the material world. Um, we have a material physical existence. But our souls are not right with God. Our hearts are disoriented. And so what they need is a renewal. When the heart is renewed, it's like becoming brand new before God. But it doesn't really work like that. It's, just, it's not like, hey, I'm going to put my head in the water and hey, my heart is new. Well, you know, I do believe that there is, uh, that there is miraculous power in the name of Jesus. And that uh, it doesn't mean that someone does not contend against sin, mm -hmm. but they no longer contend against sin in their own power. They contend against sin knowing that they are forgiven and that they are empowered by the Holy Spirit to contend against it, knowing that it does not have a final say, that we are not condemned. Oh. There's power in that. Um, and it's not just a psychological trick. Um, <laughs> it's also that, that the Spirit enables us to see our sin as it truly is. We are enabled to be seen as we truly are before God, and God is at work through that, through that knowledge, that by us knowing God, we realize that he knows us and that he's at work in us, uh, and so he's, he's restoring us by degrees, yeah. but it's like a brand new start because we are no longer condemned um, for our sin. We're no longer standing our guilt. But, and so we are now able to contend against sin and be frustrated and fight, but in the knowledge that we're free to do so and that we're happy about where God's taking us because he's already freed us to do it. Because even Biggie Graham said he was a sinner. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I know. He was, yeah, I mean, and I feel like a bigger sinner than Billy Graham. But, but we all, but, but there's, but we all stand, we all stand short. We all fall short okay. of the glory. We have not loved as we should. We're not in right relationship. Even in our best attempts at trying to be the best person we can, we even fail at that. So, so Jesus restores that and enables us to actually live in right relationship to how God made things and, and where he's leading things to be. That's good. Yeah. I think too that um as you're saying like before now i'll be back back then we i think right now there's a lot of desire for like objective truth and studying and knowing the answer and having right or wrong whereas i think before it was more just we're going to enjoy life and it was simpler and people weren't studying so much to know the truth or to know that they were right or whatever path and so in that sense i think people I think would be closer with God, um, being with nature, and that I think too the thing with Jesus is that it's not about objective truth, but it's about like subjective relationship. And I think the only or like the appeal of Jesus, if you would say it in that way, is that you have to experience. And I think maybe people did, maybe, but just it wasn't like as knowledge or heady as finding objective truth but maybe as they're walking in the water 
and God's revealing himself to them when they're in creation. Uh, I think they're closer to God because that creation is is God maybe. Um, but I also just think that the thing with Christianity is is the relationship piece. Um, that yeah, we can just talk all we want about things, but then it's the relationship part that we can't even describe because each person's subjective relationship with Jesus is different. Thank you. Another quick question, if I may. Um, the first question you had this evening, you mentioned one of your colleagues indicated that heaven belongs finally to the heavenly person. Right. Is taught mm -hmm. that all shall be revealed. We will have our answers. Mm -hmm. We will be able to ask anything. Everything will be explained. We look forward to that. That's so in the first question, I replied to say that I do not believe that we'll know all things in heaven, but you were taught that all shall be revealed, we'll know all things. Um, and I can't tell you how many times I've been told, even by my own mother, like, I cannot wait to get to heaven to ask dot, dot, dot. And I think that we that we will know, um, or, or you might even say, have the freedom to come to know about some of these things. What's that? It's not just that information will be withheld from us. I think there's some things that we just cannot know. I don't think so. I don't think that we can know all things. It's impossible. So uh, I believe that um, we will not be able to see. We cannot be able to see as God sees. We cannot know as God knows. Um, there's a delight throughout the Bible that's never held as something sinful or because of our, um, or of our moral failure, or even it is that, behold, I'm doing something new. My ways are not your ways. It's, it's not just speaking of our moral failure, it's of our finitude. God is, God is eternal. God exists in a way that we don't. Um, what I mean by that is uh, we cannot get behind the lens. I don't think that we will, uh, I personally do not believe that we will understand how the Trinity functions in heaven. I think. Yeah, what it says is that um, I shall be, I shall know as I am fully known. But it doesn't mean that I will know all that God knows. I think you could ask, but you saw how often when people ask Jesus questions, they were confused uh, by the answers. So they get the answer. But I think uh, so. I'm not saying that. So don't get me wrong. It's not that I think God's like going, why? Why are you asking? <laughs> That's not for you to know. I don't think that God's going to be like that. I think that there's just, and in fact, I think that we will be able to learn and know and grow in many ways, because in fact, uh, maybe this is a, I don't believe that when we get to heaven, that we will become static. Um, we'll never be omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Thank you, Sam, with the, the, the theological big guns. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we won't, uh, you know, the, the Adam and Eve was right to want to be like God. The problem is that they wanted to be like God in their way. And not only that, they wanted to be like God in his incommunicable attributes, which means that uh, God in his omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, all power, all knowing, all um, everywhere. Uh, And so we just won't understand what it's like to be all knowing, all powerful, you know, but, but we won't, we, the problem, the thing is we won't have a problem with that. It's not like we're just going to be happily ignorant while the world is burning around us. Uh, it's, it's that we are going to be joyful in our place. And we've never experienced that because of sin. Mm. We're very distrustful and unhappy about our position, mm. even as human creatures. And so technology has this promise that we can be all-knowing, all-present, and mm. it's destroying us because that's just not our place. Um, and so I believe that I, if, if um, now I don't know if you're not talented at music, will you ever be talented at music? I don't know, uh, but you have a long time to practice. Um, <laughs> but I do believe that, <laughs> but I think that at that point is, it's just, it's, it's a very Greek concept of what perfection is. We, we, we have this, Greek influence of what perfection is that I do not believe is what biblical perfection is, um, or even a modern sense of perfection is that we will be limitless, without boundary. Uh, no one can tell me what to do. We don't want to have constraints because we feel that there's something holding us back because they're jealous or nervous or something like that. Um, uh, and also the idea of perfection is this like static, like platonic perfection is static. It doesn't grow. It doesn't change. It's immutable. It doesn't change. Um, but the Bible sees us as um, uh, that Jesus in his perfection uh, grew um, through his, what's the verse in Hebrews? It says that he grew in the knowledge of his obedience to suffering. He learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through, and so it's, it's he learned something. How can Jesus learn anything? But there, there's a sense that it's not static. Dynamic perfection. Dynamic perfection. He was a perfect three-year-old, a perfect 12-year-old. And he just kept going because he was obedient and he could engage perfection, but it's, but it's not static. But it's not static. And I, and I just see that when we, um, when we enter into heaven, we will remain dynamic. We will continually grow and learn and engage. Um, and, and in fact, I think that if someone doesn't, if someone has scientific abilities and the other person has artistic abilities and the other person has talking ability, I don't know, but just different abilities that we won't be jealous or I wish I could be the same because also this idea of perfection is that everyone is the same in all powers and all talents. Mm. But I don't think that that's, that's not the world that I see as beautiful of what God has made and what God promises. Mm. He promises that there will be a joy of diversity of diverse gifts. Um, 
And and so I see heaven as something dynamic, yet perfect, but not static. And so I believe that what start and when you get a taste of it, so from the garden to the garden city, we see cultural development. And at the end in Revelation 21 or 22, it says that the splendor of the nations will be brought into the new Jerusalem. Something of how God made us will be um, that cultural agency and the lights of the things that will that will be that will proceed through God's winnowing fire or purity um, that they will enter into heaven without impurity or without destruction and that these things will be a part of um, so God has established a new Jerusalem but he has the joy of bringing things into it well that tells me that God wants us to participate and do as he's created us to be. Um, he wants us to be cultural within heaven. Um, there's a great book by uh, my colleague, English Abri says, what on earth is heaven? Uh, he talks about some of these things, but, uh, but anyway, so that's why I don't think, and people are often bored or horrified at the idea of heaven. It's this eternal static place mm -hmm. of, worship we're singing maranatha for forever you know? of course that's hell <laughs> uh, i'm kidding any maranatha fans sorry um just kidding um there's some good ones uh i'm just trying backtracking but anyway my point is is that there's there's a you know it says that the the, the swords will be beaten into garden shears into and plows you're just like wow you know gardening is going to be a part of this heavenly promise of heaven and so it seems that there's a delight and so can you imagine so i imagine gardening and playing music and being in relationship without jealousies without strife without stealing uh and uh and without toil and without pain can you imagine if there was no pain to go weed the garden, I think I would really enjoy it. But it's just painful and boring. But if there was no pain and no boring, I would go. You know? You know, you know what, Evan? It's when you get to Evan, it's not all shall be revealed, it's all shy be revealed. I'm glad Liz is not here. <laughs> Shoot. Oh no. She lost plans. Does that does that make sense? Is that okay? So you can still believe in all shall be revealed? Can you still believe in that? Yeah, well, well, um I'm trying to remember where that's said and what's the context for that statement. Well, there's nothing hidden that should not be revealed. There's something about people's, oh right. People's secrets. That's right. All things will be judged. Uh all hidden things will be brought to the light. What it means is that there'll be no more deceit. And so sin wants to hide things in the darkness. And we all do this. We either deceive ourselves or we deceive others. Um, uh, but those who rejoice in God want to bring those things into the light. Um, and so it is a way of saying, you know, all these, you know, you think that your little secrets and these little things that you try to hide is going to be promenaded okay nothing's going to be hidden i don't know how that's going to work but we have a sense and a fear of what that feels like 
Oh, wow. All things will be exposed. Like <laughs> all things hidden, said, meant, thought. It's like, whoo. Perfect love casts out fear. But perfect love casts out fear. Yeah, exactly. And so you say, oh, wow. So I know that I need to fear the Lord because he will judge, but I also have confidence that he will hold me in his son, Jesus. And so I, I don't have that fear. Uh, and we even feel that purification now uh, where we start bringing things out into the light now, right? Um, so that we can be renewed um, now, uh, be restored to God's purposes now and to his likeness now. Um, and that, but that will be, that will become complete and fil fulfilled before his judgment seat. Uh, so I do believe that all things will be revealed in that sense, for sure. Uh, that nothing will be hidden from God. No, I think that what it's saying is that there will be nothing. God will show that nothing is hidden from him. But it doesn't mean that we will, um, to say all shall be revealed does not mean that we will then know everything. What's the name of the book from the Little Gray book? What, what on earth is heaven by james good. paul very good. we have it here i believe very popular. yeah he's been he's been uh being invited all over the place to talk about that book oh okay 